0: But if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Matthew's Gospel and as well Luke's Gospel. We're going to be taking a look um, this Sunday and the 22nd. Now, next Sunday is the 15th. It's going to be incredible, right? We have Sunday morning. The kids have learned some stuff. We've got our program. The, the, there's going to be some people singing. We've got a bunch of things to share. And if you've never seen Malachi and Riley play their little parts, they're so cute. You will just. It's going to be awesome. So make sure that you're here, and Sunday night of course is our, is our, is our um, Christmas party, and it's really fun when we sit in a big circle, you know, and we exchange those gifts, and just have a good time, a fellowship, and it's, it's, just, it's just great, it's just awesome. Amen? amen? Come on, wake up this morning, amen? amen. God. <laughs> you know, you can say amen anyway, God is good. So this Sunday in the 22nd, I wanna be sharing Words for Christmas. Four words from four men, from God for Christmas, and four words from four different women. They came through four different women's lives about Christmas. And so this morning we're going to take the men first. I don't know why. There's it was, it was just luck of the draw. There's no preference here. It was just the way that it landed. So the guys are going to go first. And the first person, of course, we're going to talk about. Is Joseph. We just couldn't miss Joseph. So, uh, the first thing I want to point out about Joseph's life that, that God gives in a word, and it's not so much uh, a literal word that we find in Scripture, but illustrative of what happened through his life, was direction. Direction is not a word that we find in the text, but rather it's a principle in Joseph's life. You know, Joseph received direction to marry Mary. Mary. Uh, when I was at Central Bible College, it was called Central Bridal College. Um, people went there, uh, you know, to get to get married sometimes. Or even if they weren't going into ministry, some sly people would go in and they would say, I am here because I just want to find me a godly wife. And there's nothing wrong with finding a godly Amen, men? Amen. Come on, you ought to say it a lot louder. Amen, men? Amen. Okay, because you know she's sitting right beside you and the right hook is really necessary sometimes. But I remember Pam and I were there, we had gotten married, then went to school. So we're at Central Bible College and, and I had come to a point where I was so frustrated, I just wanted to be in ministry. and I was crying out to God and I was so upset with things, how some things were going. Anybody ever been there? Some things in life and I was just really upset and I was so upset so I went out uh, behind this church just right outside of Springfield, Missouri, which you've ever been to Missouri. I've called it misery. If you're from Missouri, I'm so sorry. Uh, but anyway, I was out there. and You know how it is in Missouri in the, in the late spring with all the bugs flying around. And you can't go anywhere. Bugs everywhere. Bugs everywhere. I'm out in this field. And I'm just in the, in the, I'm in the field. And I'm really, I'm screaming at God. I mean, foolishly. I'm just, God, why have you brought me to this miserable place? God, why am I here? I'm with kids in class that don't even know the books of the Bible. I, I, I mean what's going on God? How come I am in this place? I want to be in ministry so bad I, so, I was so desperate. Pam and I were broke. I was making six dollars an hour um, and I think she was making more than me she was making seven. so we were well, we were really making it, you know and, and we had all these you know I had a truck and I had a car payment. not wise. I mean, if you're a young couple starting out, don't borrow money for anything, amen? And it was a couple of phone calls to Corinne and Alvin, and Alvin paid a, a couple of car payments for us, and we lived in that miserable place. And so here I am in the back of this church, and I'm screaming to God, God, why have you brought me here? I'm so sick of this place. I'm tired of the summers, I'm tired of the springs, I'm tired of coming out to my truck, and the whole thing is iced over to the ground. I just want to be out of here. God, send me somewhere else. And the whole time I'm screaming, I'm screaming and screaming, all of a sudden I heard twice in my life, this was one of them, I heard a voice from God say, be still. He didn't say, shut up. (laughs) He didn't say, be quiet. You know, God never says that. No matter what happens to us, he just said, be still. still and from that of course things move forward and and God got a hold of me in that moment there was a pivotal moment and this was a pivotal moment for Joseph hearing God's voice because here's a pregnant young girl as young as 14 in those days and and she is with child and so he is thinking I'm just going to divorce her quietly but what does God do he tells him to marry her Matthew 119, the Bible says, And her husband Joseph, being a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. An angel of the Lord. In Matthew, uh, Matthew 2.13, he gets direction to run to Egypt as well. It says in Matthew 2.13, And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise, take the child and mother, go to Egypt. In other words, because Pharaoh is killing all the babies two years and younger, and God's telling him to get out. He gives him the dream before all this happens. He comes to him and speaks to him, gives him direction to run to Egypt. Then he gives him direction again to return home. So Joseph is getting another another appearance from an angel. In Matthew 2:19, it says, "Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and a Joseph." to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achaeus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, again, God speaking to him, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that which was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. One of the great things that God is saying to us by Jesus' coming is that God gives direction for our lives. We can know that as Christ followers, we have this advantage. That as we are following Christ, the Lord opens and shuts doors in our life for his best interest. God is, God is really good about that. He knows what you need, even when you don't. Another word that comes to us from this Christmas season is the word joy. Now, this is more than one man. It's a group of men. It's shepherds. But the Bible says that these shepherds had a, a cause or a reason. Now, the word joy or to rejoice is to the, is, it literally means the cause of or the reason for joy. So, the cause or reason for joy, and he tells them what the reason is the angel of the Lord appeared to them, Luke 2 9, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Isn't that the theme of this season? This season is a season for joy. Now, the world and its ideas have picked up on this. and From a secular perspective, it's all about Santa Claus and the perspective of presents and buying gifts and all these imaginary fairy tale things, right? But then there's this thing that God says, he explodes on the scene to these shepherds because there's gonna be an audience for this child born. And the, the thing that he is telling them is that because the child is born, there is joy. Now, joy is the reason for the season. Goodwill toward men, glad tidings to all. I mean, doesn't that sound really good? Now, compare that to a, another holiday that we have in America on October 31st called Halloween. I mean, what real comparison is there? There's good news, glad tidings for all men, joy to the world, and boo. I mean, I just don't get it. There's no comparison. See, when God does something, it's all about his glory. When man tries to do something, it's nothing but worthless. It doesn't mean anything. except a bunch of kids coming to your door begging for sweets, that's all it is. But here's a reason for joy, a real joy. First of all, the birth of any child brings joy. When I had all my boys, I was there for their birth and, and helped to deliver a couple of them. And, and of course, that is such joy when that baby was born and you know the pain and travail of childbirth and 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 Pam and I were literally crying as they were born because there was so much joy and of course the birth of Jesus was the greatest gift that mankind could ever hope for secondly because he was born God is with us so first of all, you know there's this announcement. And secondly, God is with us now. Emmanuel is the word there. And in John one four, the Bible gives us figure, to picture that God pitched his tents with our tents. In other words, he goes camping with us. He comes in this bodily form, uh, in incarnate, carne, meaning meat. He comes in flesh and he, he comes and he lives among us and he dwells among us. He is God's word. He is the expression of God's heart. And it just comes right out of God because the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And John 1, 14 says, Jesus is the word of God. What a beautiful connection. He pitched his tents Among us, That means his presence was and is with us because the work of the Holy Spirit is right here today. And he became one of us. He became among us in the flesh. We do not grieve like those that don't have any hope, friends. We have a partnership. We have a a person. We have a relationship with this God with us. He is with us. The Bible says he will never leave or forsake us. He is with us. That's always there. He knows everything about us because he is always with us. And you know what else? Because we have this joy, no circumstance in this world should ever be able to steal that from us. Sometimes we feel that way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that Christians can even be, quote, sorrowful, yet even rejoicing. You know what that means, right? I've been in a situation where, and I'm sure you have too, where, you've lost loved ones, or something, a tragedy has happened in your life, or you're having a difficult day, but inside you still have this strength, right? That's what Paul means. He says we can be sorrowful, yet we're still rejoicing. We're imparting joy. We're being given joy. This means that when we're in the midst of every bad situation that legitimately brings sorrow, our inner joy can never be taken away. The very core of of our being can still be in the fact that we're forgiven children of God. What a refreshing thing that is, right? I mean, this is not by mistake that we have an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. We often pray this promise, and I've heard people say it, and I say it all the time, in fact. I often say, and God be with them, or, or God be with us as we, well, we already know God is with us. It's not a vain statement. It's, it's just a one of announcement, saying I am uh, acknowledging what is true. I am saying that God be with them is, is an announcement of faith on my behalf, that I believe that, Lord, you are with us. Our, even our entire life, no matter what happens, no matter what goes on, even if it's like an old country song, where we lose the house, the wife, the dog, you know, everything, we can still have joy. Thirdly, another word comes, and this word is called truth. And this is where I was tempted to pull out the marker board again and do some other things, but I'm not gonna do that this morning. I hope that we can catch all these things. There's a divine prophecy versus a man called Balaam's magic stories. Christmas, real Christmas is about Jesus, amen? The world celebrates in different ways. We celebrate in culture with Santa Claus and characters that we've all been raised with in our culture. I was not raised with these things, so I was never raised with the Santa Claus, my kids have never taken a picture with Santa Claus, it's not, they haven't been emotionally scarred for life, uh, you know, I was raised understanding that this gift came from grandma, and this gift come from mom and dad, and, and it, we rejoice in the holiday, we we understand that Jesus was born because of this, we never had any of those um other things. And it's predominant though in our culture. I mean, Santa Claus and elves and, and magic and all these things. And I have always thought it interesting that Santa has these divine qualities attributed to him, right? I mean, he's omniscient. He knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad So it'll be good for goodness. Oh my goodness, right? And he's omnipresent, right? He, he knows everything. He He's omnipotent. He's got all these powers. And Frosty the snowman was a joyful happy. And these are, you know, they're just fanciful little stories. And it's okay to tell stories. There's no problem with stories. Mr. Grinch and uh, Grinch and Mr. Scrooge and Bahumbug and, and all of these things. The culture has taught us, since we are children in this culture, of, of a lot of fictional beliefs. So sometimes during this season, we have to stop and we have to part the curtain of all the noise. And we have to say, this is why we are celebrating. You see, the celebrating is very big. It's very important that God came to earth, that, that his truth is with us. We've also learned from our culture that Christmas is all about magic. The Santa Claus is magical, the elves are magical, the flying reindeer are magical, it's pixie dust and magic spells, right? And this, this has been a distraction to the real Christmas. And I want us just to think about this for a minute. And, and I'm not saying we don't you know, connect with some of the things in culture, but I'm saying that to separate the real incarnation with mythology is really important. And that our children understand the difference. And the actual dark magic and sorcery that was at Christmas. There's a connection with real magic and dark sorcery with the original Christmas. In 1452 B.C., Balaam was a prophet during the early days of Israel. Well, how is Balaam tied to Christmas? Well, hang on with me. He's very important. He has a special power. And those he cursed were cursed, and those that he blessed were blessed. And the the king of Moab hired Balaam because he wanted to have victory over his enemies' armies, uh, armies of God, and because of this, to do so, Balaam... Uh, came and, and t- he brought Balaam. He told him, hey, Balaam, I want you to do this, but, uh, hire him to give this prophecy. But Balaam's greed, relationships with God's enemies brought spiritual blindness to Balaam. Balaam was, was not a follower of God. Sometimes we think that he was, but he wasn't. He persisted in his own way. He got his own way. He got, he got his money and he caused Israel to become morally corrupt. We find this in Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 22, follow me with this story. If you have your Bibles, Numbers chapter 22 and verse four, the Bible says, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick, us, lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. That's Israel he's talking about. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam. Now they're going to Balaam because they know something about him. The son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, uh, to call him saying, behold, the people, uh, a people has come out of Egypt, Israel, they cover the face of the earth and they're dwelling opposite me and he's afraid. He knows that they're, he's outnumbered. He knows that if there's war, he's gonna lose. Verse six, it says, come now, watch this, curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me, perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that whom you bless is blessed. Notice the reputation that Balaam has. And whom you curse is cursed. Now look at verse 27. I put on a separate slide all by itself because I want to draw attention to it. It says this. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian uh, departed with fees for divination so we might ask again what does this have to do with Christmas so hang on with me here we have Balaam performing really dark magic in his day genuine deception and he was empowered by Satan and, and we get this because there is no good magic there's, it's, there's no white magic there's no good spells there's no there's no it's just all it's, in terms of scripture goes all this stuff is just opposite of God's will it's just bad it's wrong it's like rebellion, the Bible says. It's against God. Balaam's reputation uh, was solid because he had apparently this ability and this ability was so great that he was very wealthy because of it. People paid him a lot of money to give false prophecies or prophecies about people that, that they just wanted because, and so if they paid him and he said it, it came true. So he's not a godly prophet by any means and he's dabbling in the spiritual realm and he sells his prophecy really to the highest bidder. In fact, these guys come to Balaam and they say, I tell you what, you need to come with us and you need to curse Israel. So Balaam's getting ready to go and he's getting all of his stuff ready and he's gonna go and he's gonna call, uh, curse Israel. But Balaam, as he's getting ready to go, God comes to him and says, hey man, do not do this. God shows up, these people are blessed. God used the word blessed. How many are blessed? If you know the Lord, you're blessed. Blessed. The enemy comes against us, but we're blessed. We are blessed. We're touched by God. So he said, you know, these people are blessed. So they leave, but Moab doesn't give up. Balak, he's he's not going to give up. So he goes after Balaam again, and and he sends more prestigious people, princes and gold and and everything. And Balaam responds, and he says, basically, if Balak even fills his whole house with gold, it's not enough. I'm not going to do it because... God has spoken. And this is interesting for Balaam because he's very antithetical toward prophetic things of God anyway, apparently. But because God did this, he had such impact, even if he fills his whole palace with gold, so Balaam waits again and God says to them, I want you to go with them anyway, but do not do anything that I don't tell you to do. So the next morning Balaam gets up, saddles his donkey and goes with these princes of Moab, Balak's entourage, if you will, but God is not happy with Balaam. He is indifferent to the direction of Balaam's life. Balaam, as you know the account in history, the donkey stops and won't go any further. So he gets out and he beats the donkey and he hits the donkey and he kicks the donkey and he he abuses the donkey and the donkey talks to him. I mean, what would you do? The donkey says, I've been faithful. What in the world are you abusing me for? This is the Ellis, Larry Ellis version, so <laughs> L.E.V. version, popular in most bookstores. So he says, what are you doing this to me for? I've been a faithful donkey to you all this time. And then his eyes are open, and of course he sees an angel of the Lord. Now notice in Numbers um, chapter 24, if you want to turn there. Um, in Numbers 24, we have recorded four oracles that Balaam, and Ka- when he's going on his way to do what he's gonna do because God knows he's prone to give in to wanting money for his divine divination sorcery powers, that God stops him and when God's spirit comes on him, in spite of who he is in that moment, much like um, King Saul confronting David and the spirit of God came on Saul and he prophesied and people wonder, well Saul, was he one of the prophets? No, and notice, you know, it's sideline. In the Old Testament, the spirit comes on them In the New Testament, the Spirit comes in them. Someday we'll preach about that. Anyway. (laughs) But the Holy Spirit comes on Balaam. In the next couple chapters, in Numbers 24, 23 and 24, he gives four oracles. But in Numbers 24, 17, look what he says. I see him, capital H, but not now. I behold him, capital H but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. There's such prophetic connection because he's talking about Jesus coming out of Israel, being the anointed one. Him is Christ. Scepter is a symbol of authority and the ability to rule and to reign and the anointing of God, the star, is gonna be a representation of what's gonna happen. Many people I don't think know, but ironically, here we have an ungodly person, the first one to prophesy about the star. God's power overcame his magic, and the truth of God was evident, and prophecies about Jesus became normal. He was a sorcerer, and he was hired to cast spells on people. He he spoke curses on people. Now get this, and I think many theologians understand this, and we get this idea that he was the father of the magi. Now, if we mind this connection very carefully, which we can, in fact, in Daniel chapter two, we we really get it emphasized that this is uh, this is definitely a connection to the king's magi. Remember in Daniel, or the magicians couldn't figure out. The dream, and so Daniel was called upon, and and, and he interpreted the dream. And remember, um, in the early days of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar's court to Esther, the 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 magicians that are there. So the term magi, in the New Testament, the wise men who, uh, you know, unlike popular belief, were they were not at the stable with the shepherds at Jesus' birth. They came about a thousand miles. They traveled. They're called the Magi from the East, where we get our word magic from. And they were magicians. They were uh, astronomers. Their connections are back to their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Balaam, right? They, they're magicians. And I, I think these particular ones were, were believers definitely in the prophecy. Obviously, they were so, and we shouldn't be too hard on them. They're not Jewish. They don't have a heritage. This is what our missionaries face, right? I mean, if you grew up in America, or, or like my boys, they grew up in church and they're in church so their whole life, they have, there's a certain heritage and mindset. If, if I were to take them and transplant them you know, in the middle of um, Pakistan, where there's been no real message about Jesus enough or much, or in the middle of China where there's many unreached people uh, because of communism and the regulation of the gospel of God, it, there's no heritage there. To, but, so these guys have no heritage, but they have something else. They, they know, they don't know about God necessarily. There's no heritage, they gravitate uh, uh, people toward, the, but people are gravitated normally in their life toward the supernatural, and that's why there's witch doctors. That's why there's sorcery and fortune telling and horoscopes and astrology and all this stuff. So anyway, Persians, they, their home goes all the way back to Balaam, their first one. Because Moab was conquered by Persia, one of their prophets their founder, and they found him unable to curse Israel. So they're studying their history, and as these guys study back, they find that their founder, Balaam, was unable to curse Israel because God stopped them. And then they fast forward and they read in the scripture where the days of Esther that were in Persia, that which were taken over by Israel, that God rescued through Mordecai because the God of Israel was greater than their magic. So once again, they see that God rescued Israel. Then again, they know their history and their sorcerers. They then they go back to their history to the Their own magi could not interpret the dream. In Daniel chapter two, who is also in captivity and God rescues Daniel. An Israelite man, the God of Daniel rescued him and they know this God of Daniel is connected with the prophecy that that their great, 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 great grandfather Balaam could not prophesy against Israel because God stopped them and caused him to call out four oracles under the anointing of the Holy Spirit way back when. And here they are equating their history as they study the history all the way Through and they realize that their history tells them about uh, three young men that were uh, in a place where uh, a king said, "I'm the greatest king," and he erects a a ninety foot statue and he says, "When you hear the music play, I want everybody to bow down and worship this statue." And now everybody bows down except three men. Who are they? They are from the tribe of Israel. They are three men who serve the God of Israel. They don't bow, and what happens? They're thrown in the fiery furnace, and the God of Israel overcame their magic and all the things that they could do and they were in the fire and they were not consumed. What happens? Daniel says, I'm going to pray three times a day. I don't care if you say to pray to you only. I'm going to pray to the God of Israel, The one true God. And what happens? He goes in his upper room. He opens the window. So everybody see it. He prays to God every day. And what happens? The God of Israel, whom all the presidents and the the princes and all the the other magicians and everything in their history, the God of Israel, once that guy was thrown into the lion's den, what happened? He doesn't get eaten. Who gets thrown in the lion's den? And doesn't get even a little snag in his clothing. And here's a guy that gets out scot-free. (coughs) <coughs> and his God is the God of Israel. And so they look back in their history, and they realize that, that this incredible thing was there, and they study Daniel, and, and Daniel prophesies, and they're reading the prophecy of Daniel that Messiah is going to come in 483 years. He prophesies that 483 years. Well, did Jesus come from that point of Daniel's prophecy in 483 years? No, no. It was actually 453 years earlier. Why the 30-year discrepancy? Because a man's ministry does not start until he's 30 years old. They knew that Jewish men began their ministry when they were 30 years old. That's why at that exact time, for 30 years, they added to the 483, which going the other way brings you back to 453 years. They understood that that prophecy was going to come to pass and there was going to be a star appear in the sky because their great, 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 great grandfather Balaam told him so. The truth. Now that's power. That's power. So they're smart. They weren't on camels, they were on Persian horses, probably the finest in the world. There weren't just three, there were three gifts. And they didn't come to Jesus in a stable. And we know this because the scripture says that they came to the house and they saw the young child. He must have been a toddler between nine and 18 months because of the whole killing of the two years old, younger and getting out. And so not only does God's truth destroy Balaam's lies for sale, God's word puts an advertisement in the sky about the coming of Messiah Jesus. The exact place, the ex- exact time where Messiah Jesus was to be born. Friends, I got to tell you, your world speaks lies and your world can speak lies about you. Lies that you're not good enough, but the truth, the Bible says, has made you righteous. Lies that might say you're not altogether but the truth is that you are made whole in Jesus. Lies that say you were insignificant, but the truth is that God has, has, has the very hairs of your head numbered. Lies that say you're worthless, but the truth is that you've been bought with a great price. Lies that say you have no future, but God says you have a great price. Purpose lies that say that, 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 that say you're nothing, but God will give us freedom. He gives us joy. He gives us hope. He says in 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 he says to you that you have vision. Jesus is the truth, the word of God. Jesus says he was born, Jesus Savior, who, that He would born, be born at a specific time and it happened. This is Jesus. This is the truth. The power of the incarnation is the reason that we celebrate. Real power, real truth. Real truth. Four, another word, salvation. Now, this word, we're going to address the character of a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is married to Elizabeth. As you know, he's John the Baptist's dad, and Elizabeth is with child. She's pregnant with John the Baptist. And John. And it, he gets a vision from an angel. Not that he was Baptist and Calvinistic and theology. He was just named John. That I'm sure he was somewhat Arminian, but we won't get into that right now. So here's ja, Zechariah, and he's doing his priestly duties. And while he's in there, God gives him a vision, says your wife is going to be with child. Now he's old, and he says, how can this be since I am old? And he is a smart man. He doesn't call his wife old, he says, and she is advanced in years. Now, you guys, just just take a hint from that, okay? Make sure that you understand how to address an unpopular and uncomfortable topic. Since he didn't believe the angel, he was mute until John was born, right? And he was unable to do anything. So he was given something to write with when John was born. And they asked him what the name's child was. And scripture says he he wrote the name John. His name is John. He wrote up something and as soon as he did, scripture says he was filled, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. His mouth was open. In Luke 1, 1, verse 1, verse 67, it says, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation. For us in the house of David, his servant, uh, in the house of his servant, David, excuse me. I like this. It uses the word salvation. In verse 68, it says salvation. That this word salvation is so powerful and so important. Salvation is the reason for Christmas. Salvation is the power of this season. In verse seven, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 76, further down, it says, And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go before the Lord to prepare, as way, talking about John, to give knowledge of what? Salvation. To his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Christmas is about salvation. That's the priority of Christmas. Jesus will come and save people from their sins. Now, when Jesus is born... His name is Yeshua. Okay, Yeshua in Hebrew. Now, Yeshua, Jesus in the Greek. Yeshua in Hebrew. So, Jesus is a derivative. Yeshua, which is a, a derivative of the name Joshua. Now, there's there's some changes that are made to the Josh to the name Joshua by Moses. So Moses comes and and Joshua, his servant, you know, his heir, that's going to you know, going to the Promised Land, he he changes uh, his name is Hoshea, with an H, H-O-S-E-A, H-O-S-H-E-A, So his name in English, I'm using English to describe Hebrew, so you have to look through that. But anyway, he changes his name, and the letters are very important in the original language. So he his his name is Hoshea, and and Moses changes his names to Joshua or Joshua. It given the J, giving the, adding the word J means um, saves. So he adds the J to Joshua. Hoshia means um, that he saves. So Hosh, uh, he comes to this place where Moses changes his name, it means saves, so God saves. Uh, um, Hoshia, God, and in that reference, and the J adding the salvation, so God saves. But God does one better because he names jesus that we know in the greek but in the hebrew is yeshua jesus god does one better because he takes the article of the o and he takes the o out and replaces it with an e now the e is very important because when god adds the e he takes out the o from hoshea as the e calling jesus yeshua rather than yoshua keep it jo- or joshua keep in mind i'm uh, translating from english to hebrew but what does God why does God do this? Because the meaning of the added e Yeshua means I am. I am. So the actual name of Yeshua Jesus, I am God, your salvation. I am your savior. The reason that the Pharisees got so mad at Jesus is because he was always saying, "I am the door. I am the way. I am God. <coughs> I am the good shepherd." I am the bread of life. And saying I am is saying that you're God. Saying I am is just saying I was, I am forevermore. I am the one, the eternal God. So Jesus, Yeshua, God of our salvation, God of our salvation, Jesus is our salvation. This is the meaning of Christmas. Christmas. Yeshua, I am the Savior. Uh, The birth of Jesus is among the four greatest events in all of the world history. His resurrection, his crucifixion, his life, and of course, his birth. Why? Because he is God. The great I am who saves. Titus 1.13. 2.13 tells us he is our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the global Savior of every nation and of every language. Jesus is the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the church. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the lost. He's Savior of sinners like me. What does he save us from? Just a few big ones. He saves us from hell. That's pretty good. He saves us from Satan, from wrath, from from all the God's wrath, from all of these things. Zechariah Was mute until he acknowledged the name that God gave him for his son John. Can you imagine how that was bottled up inside? Can you imagine Zachariah knowing this whole time what his name was and putting it on the back burner and having it mill around, unable to speak for the duration of the pregnancy? And here he is finally. When John is born, he's able to write these words. His name is John. Can you just imagine that? Well, I want to take us back a few years. Let's go back before the 400 silent years between the Old and New Testament. All the prophecies about Jesus from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 all the way through uh, that great Italian prophet Malachi. God does all the way through and he tells all about Jesus coming, about Jesus is coming soon. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah will save you. The Messiah is coming. All the way through the minor prophets and the the major prophets, whether or not they're more important or not, or just because they were from the south and they had an accent. I have no idea, but they were the minor prophets, and they're all talking about this Messiah coming. Then all of a sudden, all this noise, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Then it's quiet. It's silent. There's no sound. For 400 years, there's no noise between the Old Testament and New Testament. And all of a sudden, not just one person wrote the story which would make it a good story not just two people recorded the history not just three people talked about it not just four not just five, the writer of Hebrews which I don't ascribe to Paul but we can argue about that later (laughs) Paul, Peter I mean, how many different people wrote about this fantastic incarnation? And all of a sudden, I can imagine what God the Father must have been like. Can you imagine 400 silent years bottling up all that stuff? And if out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, all of a sudden, Jesus is in God's heart. The idea for salvation of mankind is in God's spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to speak, and all of a sudden, Jesus! He shouted on the scene, and he's born. The fullness of God incarnate, the truth about great salvation, the hope that we have. There's no other religion in this world that can make such comparisons. In a book with over 1,700 different places where there's cross-referenced about Jesus, one book. I tell you what, this is such good news that I think we ought to celebrate it. Maybe we ought to meet together. You know, maybe at least once a year. Maybe we should give gifts to one another and say, Jesus has blessed me with salvation. Let this be a representation of his love for you. Maybe we should have some meals together and, and we should celebrate the fact that this wonderful savior has been born. Maybe we should sing songs about him and put up silhouettes about his birth. Maybe we should decorate our homes. Maybe we should do something that says Jesus. Maybe we should ditch Santa Claus. (laughs) Amen. Praise God.